Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have back on our show, Gareth Locke. Uh, the human diver. He's an author. He's brought a lot of experience from his 25 years in the Royal Air Force to oil and gas to many different industries, including diving. Um, but my favorite is his uh, branding around counter-errorism. So, Gareth, welcome back to the show. Tell me a little bit first about counter-errorism and uh, your journey into safety and diving. Eric, thanks very much for, uh, for inviting me back in. As, as we know from, from the last time, there's just so much to talk about this mm. stuff. And I'm really quite passionate about sharing my knowledge and, and that journey that's there. So the whole piece about counter-errorism in diving is just recognizing that we're all fallible. My, my, um, my first idea about um, the, the diving business was the fallible diver. And people are like, that's really negative. <laughs> Let, let, you know, we know that, that humans are fallible. So why not make it a human diver? And it's like, yeah, okay. And, and so it's, it's both sides of what I would say that the bow tie that, that some of your listeners might know about is the prevention piece and then the, the, the mitigation afterwards and, and recognizing that, that human error is normal. You know, the first principle of human and organizational performance. So I've got a, a, a real broad experience and operational background in, in aviation, in research and development, flight trials, procurement, systems engineering, left the Air Force in February 15, set up my own business, worked in oil and gas and healthcare and software teams. But my passion is really about trying to bring this stuff into the predominantly the sports diving space, but now starting to work with military and scientific mm. um, and commercial dive teams as well, because hey, people are people. Um, we're all wired the same way and we all behave broadly the same way. So the knowledge is easily transportable as long as you can have an open mind and say, you know what, that's the context and the behaviors that lead to error outcomes. Mm -hmm. Let's see how we can bridge that into whatever space that I'm working in. Excellent. And today, a topic we're going to touch on is about organizational learning, something that very, very powerful, important concepts yeah. that is really at the crux of, of safety, but more specifically around power of storytelling when it pertains to, to learning. So tell me a little bit about some of the work you've done around uh, learning and, and listening to stories. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the challenges in any environment is getting lessons to be transferred from one person to another. Sure. And and the, the difference as well between lessons identified and lessons learned. You know, people will experience something, they've gone wrong. They then need to take a little bit of time to reflect and unpack what's just happened. And the, there's a, almost an altruistic need to share that story beyond yourself. Um, organizations or domains mandate or regulate reporting. So aviation, there is an mm -hmm. obligation that said you had an event, you are to report. Um, now, actually, 
would it be nice if we could actually get people to share those stories voluntarily? That they, they get that out there. And that for that to happen, we've got to have both a psychologically safe environment so we sure. know that we can make those mistakes, but also we've got to have a just culture that, that recognises that we're all fallible. And, and there is this grey line that sits between acceptable and unacceptable behaviour. So in the diving space, my where my real interest in human factors in diving came from 2005, where I had a near miss. Um, diving, had a close call. I recovered the situation. I got back to the UK and I said, well, how do I report this? Um, because that was my military aviation background. I've had a near miss. Let's share it. And I found it really difficult to do that. So since 2005 and, and now, really, it's been about trying to create the environment where people can share stories and tell stories. Um, and there's my, my, I'm doing a master's degree at Lund University. And one of my things that I'm looking at there is where do people share stories? What are the barriers? What are the enablers? Who will they share with? Why won't they share? And so as I've gone through the literature, there is you know, a couple of reasons. Organizations would like stories to be shared, incident stories mm-hmm. to be shared, because they believe that they, as an organization, can learn and improve. But for that to happen, the person who's been involved in the story has to have some value to that. Now, that value could be internal, so we unpack it, sure. that we've got a, a cathartic approach to sit there and go, wow, okay, that was close. How do I, you know, what happened? What were the context? Mm-hmm. What led to that? Because actually, I don't want that to happen again. But that's potentially counter to what an organization wants, where they're looking at much bigger things. They're often they're counting stories, and they're not actually listening or reading the narratives that are there. And so there's two conflicts between storytelling following incidents. Um, and and that's, that work from Sana in 2008 just looked at actually frontline railway engineers, operators, trackside engineers. Mm-hmm. They tell stories to keep themselves and their buddies safe. And my research in the diving space has shown that people will share stories in a close, trusted group because they don't want it to go further, even though organizations talk about having psychological safety or a just culture in place, there's often a fear that people will be ridiculed for being stupid. And if we can't recognize and we can't accept fallibility, then the stories mm-hmm. that get shared are not complete. So it's a, it's a huge opportunity, but we've got to create the almost the theater to be able to tell those stories. Very interesting point. And I know when you talk about stories, there was some research I was reading recently from Harvard around retention, and we retain stories considerably better than statistics. Um, Sizable difference at the end of the day in terms of what you do remember to the tune of 33% versus 73% um, of of what you remember. So substantial differences. So how how do you create that environment? How do you create this uh, setting? So what you describe in diving to me sounds like a group, of, a group of buddies together sharing maybe after work. Yeah. And so it's, it's more social learning, but it's not necessarily embedded in the organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going in, how do you do it? You create the, the, the environment where people can share, where you have a structure of a debrief. So some of the original work from Gary Klein with firefighters, how do they make decisions in uncertain environments? Mm-hmm. Um, time pressured, um, incomplete information. And what he noticed was that 
they would finish their shift and they'd clean up their gear and then they'd go and grab a brew and they would talk about what they heard, what they smelt, what they felt, what was going through their mind. And that was as a team. And so what was happening is they were sharing and creating shared mental models within their teams. And, and that then helped them make decisions in uncertainty. And it helps pass on tacit knowledge. So the, the environment is, is critical. There has to be a level of trust. Um, so that's, uh, and you've got to have a, a norm of doing a debrief. And that's what I've been trying to bring into the diving space is having a structure for a debrief because often people don't know how to tell a story. And that's, again, what's come out of my, uh, my research is that novice divers, especially, that they're lacking in two things. One is they don't know how to tell a learning story to get a point across. And the other thing is, actually, they often don't know what they don't know. So it's that bit that they don't know they've had a near miss because they sure. have got no concept of what right, wrong, good, bad looks like. And as a consequence, they're not even looking at, at where things are. When we get to, I'm going to say, the more mature area of the diving space, we talk about instructors. Now we've got credibility, we've got reputation, we've got litigation involved. And in that sense, instructors won't tell their near-miss stories because there's this fear of, oh, look, mm. he's an instructor hang on a minute, I'm supposed to be doing some training with him and he's talking about mistakes that have happened? It's like, yeah, they're human too. And that's, that's right. no different than surgeons. You know, society holds surgeons on a pedestal of excellence. Police officers operating in dynamic, uncertain environments, it's really difficult to tell a multi-actor, truthful story because people will be able to play the news clips back or the body cam stuff back and go, hey, look, you missed that and you missed that <laughs> because they're on a, you know, they, they don't understand human fallibility. So th this bit, how, how do you create an environment is leaders, peers, role model that and you can start in the small groups and build shared trust or, or psychological safety. But for a start, you've got to know where something has gone wrong and, mm -hmm. and I recently wrote about near misses were you lucky or were you good that often near misses are treated as successes rather than failures because we got a good outcome even though we were really close and so mm -hmm. we just move on pat in the back off you go it sure. takes it takes a very different mindset to sit there and go and ask that question were we lucky or were we good oh yeah we were good all right <laughs> what did we do that we can replicate the next time and the time after that. Oh yeah, actually we were pretty lucky then. All right, so let's look at what we missed and build those stories and then share it as, as it goes. And the, the problem with stories is they get modified and, and, and changed because of the way that our memory works. We embellish certain factors and we hide other ones. Um, mm -hmm. Because we don't have that that sort of psychological safety, that security to show our vulnerabilities. It, it, very interesting. When you mention you talk about storytelling, debriefing, what, scenario that comes to mind is the approach that the U.S. Air Force, no, sorry, U.S. Um, Army has used around after-action reviews, which are originally intended to be essentially storytelling from multiple different perspectives to walk through what did we went, go through, whether or not there was something 
good or bad as an outcome, mm-hmm. but really trying to look at what do we plan and where was it different than what we expected it to look like? Is that something similar that you're describing? Yeah, totally. Um, th- this need to get into the habit of running a debrief. Um, so often debriefs or after action reviews are run when something has gone wrong. Now, if you don't perceive that something has gone wrong, why are we running this debrief? And it, it just then loses its value and people then lose, you know, get out sure. of the habit of doing it. Whereas actually, if we frame the debrief, and, I'll, and I, uh, we can put something in the show notes, a link to a debrief guide that I use, mm-hmm. and, and it follows the word debrief. And so the key learnings that are in there are internal learning. What did I do well and why? What do I need to improve on and how am I going to do it? And the E is the external learning, the team. What did the team do well and why? And what did the team need to improve and how are they going to do it? And the why and the how questions are the most important because we can make an observation about something that went well or we need to improve, but it takes a lot of thinking to say, why did that go well? Or how are we going to make that improvement? And then the final part, the F of the the debrief framework is about fix, find, uh, fix, file or follow up. So you've you've done an activity, you've you know you've briefed it, you you planned it, you briefed it, you've done it, you've debriefed it. Now you've identified some lessons. What are you going to do with them? And that's the difference between lessons learned and lessons identified. Many organisations have got loads of lessons <laughs> identified, but far fewer lessons learned. And the lesson learned is where you've looked at something, you've put something in place, and you've measured its improvement. Or Actually, you realize that that intervention didn't work, and sure. so you've learned that that didn't work. So the, the, the difference between um, lessons learned and lessons identified is, did a change happen afterwards? Um, and, and that's a huge piece. It is, because a lot of times, like you said, organizations learn the same thing over and over and over because a change is not embedded. It's just something on a policy document that says, thou shall do it this way, yeah. which may or may not... Yeah solve the problem or may or may not be operationalized. Absolutely, absolutely. And that takes strong leadership. I, I was recently involved in a, a major review and the, the accountable individual, the, the duty holder for this, um, wouldn't sign off until, you know, wouldn't sign off the actions, the recommendations as being complete until they'd actually been completed and put in place. Because one of the parts of the review that we mm. picked up was that there were recommendations made on previous reviews that never actually got fulfilled. <laughs> um, and he was like, hang on a minute. You know, these were not directly contributory towards the event, but they did recognize that, hang on a minute, we're not very good at learning here because we capture this stuff and we don't mm-hmm. fix those things that are faulty or failed. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. So, so I love your storytelling approach to learning. How do you disseminate that across an organization so that the divers that get together, 
They can do that casually. How do you make sure that that same insight gets cascaded to groups that can't be there physically? Um, so as a direct example, what I mm. put together is a documentary called If Only. Uh, and that looks at a, uh, a diving fatality through the lens of human factors and just culture. Um, and, and I'll send you the link for that as sure. human diver or slash if only. And I was really fortunate to get involved with the widow uh, of the diver and the dive team, three members of the three surviving members of the dive team. So we flew out to Hawaii and we we had a um, face to camera work. We reenacted it uh, and we shot about five and a half hours of video. And then we that was reduced to 24, 25 minutes. And then I added some other stuff. And, and the editor said, look, you're going to have to make it shorter than 20 minutes. And I'm like, what do you take out? I don't know. <laughs> so so I, I created this 34-minute documentary, which has been downloaded thousands of times. And, and that then goes out. And I know that people in the non-diving space have looked at this and gone, because the failures are multiple mm. within the system. And often it's about psychological safety, about decisions, about inability to speak up, about drift about equipment not being set up correctly, which carry across many other domains as well. So to me, the ability to share engaging, emotional, sometimes really quite powerful stories to get across there. So that's one way. Um, The blogs that I write, I often start a blog with a story because people, they're sort of, when you open it up and you go, aha, What's going to happen next? You know, you've started off with, and the diver was on so-and-so and, and, and this, and you go, right, what's happening next? And, and, and you've got to put a hook in there, and then you've got to stitch the theory into the story so that it becomes a learning lesson, and they can relate to the individual. There is a really powerful bias of distancing through differencing, and this sits not just at an individual level, but an organizational level as well where we will look at somebody or some organization and go, they're different to us. We wouldn't make that mistake. And you sit there and go, yes, you would. Um, And so, you know, from the diving side, I put together Under Pressure, the book that I published, and there's another one called Close Calls, which is a similar story. Mine's got theory woven woven in and out. Close Calls is just stories um, Hmm. from names across the industry. Um, And people like to read them. The, the hard part is, does it actually change people's behavior? Because ultimately, that's what we want to do, sure. is get people to think differently and understand the context which they were in. Not to turn around and say, I wouldn't do that as an outcome, because the outcome's too late. What we're trying to do is spot the context developing and sit there and go, oh, I recognize this, and I can see where the trajectory is. But that's really hard to to get across. Um, And even when you've got known stories, so there's a paper I read recently from Dylan and Tinsley, or it might just be Dylan on their own, talking about using lessons from Challenger to get the ideas across. And what they did is they created a scenario of an aircraft that needed to fly some spares to a remote location, but the temperature was low and the oil seals might leak on the engines. And if the engine, if the oil seals broke, they'd need to shut down the engine, they'd probably ditch, and then the, the crew might not survive mm. the ditching. And what was really interesting was even though the story was told as if it was Challenger, 
the people didn't recognize it was Challenger <laughs> and still about 70 odd percent of people went, yeah, we'll launch, off you go. So even when you're given narrative, we often can't make the connection <laughs> because just the way our brains are wired, unfortunately. So it has to be really visceral. It has to be, that's me and I would do that. Interesting. So, and I've seen this many times in organizations, when you talked about small group sharing their mistakes, you create a part mm. of it is, is there is a camaraderie, people know each other. Is there a way that you've seen to extend this, right? So that people don't say that won't happen to me. I wouldn't make that silly mistake to, to really overcome that element, to recognize that, yes, as humans, we're all bound to make those mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd say probably U.S. Forest Service with their um, lessons learned center that they've got. And I think the, the important bit is to get away from the individual's erroneous performance and look at the context and the error-producing condi error conditions which are there. And, and that's what I was sort of referring to earlier is understanding what goes into a good learning story is understanding what sets somebody up for failure in, in this, this scenario they're in? Because by definition, if we knew what the outcome of the event would be, we would have stopped it. Sure. So th this bit about, right, think about all those bad things that are going to happen. Yeah, well, how am I going to spot them? I don't know the significance of those. So what we have to do then is actually what can we tell in terms of the situation developing that I will encounter and then sit there and go, this is, this is the, the system or the situation changing. Okay, that's the flag. Not, I won't make that mistake. It's, I'm now in a situation where I'm more likely to make the mistake. Can I raise my game? Is there something that's a flag that says, look out? Interesting. So, so move it away from the error itself to the context, the situation that people are in, because then you're more likely to relate saying that set of circumstances could happen to me as well. Yeah, totally. And so aviation moved from, you know, cockpit resource management to crew resource yep. management, now threat and error management. So there's this, you know, this expectation that the aircrew are competent to do what they need to do. We don't need mm -hmm. to train them more and more to do that. What we the, the threat and error management situation is, I'm going into potentially a busy airfield. The wind is marginal. Do I set up the opposite runway ILS or approach systems or the other frequencies? The, the, the weather forecast has got thunderstorms in the area or whatever it is. You know, it's a, it's a um, potentially confusing runways. Let's think about how do we set ourselves up for success, not failure, because generally that's about sharing stories where, you know what, the situation got away from people. So can we get ahead of things and provide that flag that says, whoa, that's enough. And, you know, in, in the majority of high-risk industries, we have something called stop work authority. Yep. That, my, my simplistic view is that often that's a SOP by an organization to say, I'm going to give you a card. If you think it's unsafe, then hold this card up and stop the job. But most people don't know that it's all going horribly wrong until it's gone wrong and then the organization says, why didn't you stop the job? Because you could see it was there. And there are a whole bunch of 
social technical reasons why people mm. find it hard to say stop because yeah. there's there's goals that are around there. So if we can start to say, let's look at the conditions that are around us, then that's actually easier to, to, to raise a flag. Mm. Yeah, and also helps people understand where am I entering dangerous territory, right? Your example mm. of maybe this confusing runways, there's been some runways where there's been more than one flight where almost landed on uh, not the runway, but but landed on another airplane that was taxiing, right? And so, but you know which airports those are. So so you could be on high alert if you know, okay, I'm approaching San Francisco yeah. is one of them, I believe has come up a few times and say, okay, on this approach, here's what I need to pay extra attention to. Yes. Yeah. And, and so we've got a, a limited capacity to pay attention. So in that bit that says, actually, here's the high threat situation. <laughs> I'm now going to sort of not quite ignore the other things, but I'm going to point my attention. And one of the things I try to get across in my training is we've mm. got a limited capacity to pay attention. Sure. So it's not that people weren't paying attention. It's and because often the response is pay more. What we, ca we can't pay more attention. What we can do is focus it somewhere else. So what we're trying to do is what's the threat that we're encountering? Um, and that comes from understanding the near misses that are out there and, and the context that, that's, that's encountered. So, so Rich, a topic to me, the organizational learning is probably one of the most challenging parts of, of safety that we keep talking about. Hardest one to do. Um, but I love your angle in terms of sharing stories, uh, trying to learn on a regular, continuous basis, and uh, just so that people reflect and think through the stories. And then how do you disseminate those stories through scenarios on the context as opposed to the individual and the error that they made? I think those are very, very powerful concepts uh, that hopefully help organizations move from learning the same thing over and over to learning and actually embedding that change. Totally. And, and what I would say from, from my experience as well is people are more likely to share a context-rich story than a closed narrative story, which is focused on individuals. So if you can get more context, more system, if you can get multi-actors in there, there's a paper out there looking at when an incident report has got multiple narratives, then people are more likely to look at systems causes than a single narrative which is a synthesis by the investigator who will have their own perspective and often it's about compliance, non-compliance. And so people will look at that and say, here's the recommendations which are fo focused on fixing the person. Whereas actually if you have multiple actors and you can hear the conflict and the, the different ideas. And when you've got six actors involved in an incident, Expect six stories. It's not because they're lying. It's because they've got different perceptions sure. about what happened. So if you've got the opportunity to share a multi-actor story, that's the way to go about it. So soon we'll be writing Hollywood scripts through those stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we often have multiple actors in a story in a, in a film. Yeah, but there's some truth to the, the way you share a story, because even in Hollywood, they say there's seven story themes to every movie that's sold uh, across the board. So rags to riches is an example. But it's, it's there's a narrative that we tend to listen to, the personas and everything else gets us to associate with it and then remember that story. Totally. And there's a paper from Drew Ray, which talks about the different safety stories and how you share them. Do you tell the 
the outcome and then build it up on a different narrative? Do you tell one narrative where people jump to conclusions and then you tell the context-rich story, which then brings the learning point out? Um, so this goes back to what's the purpose of the story and who's the audience you're trying to tell the story to uh, and the learning point you're trying to get across. Excellent. Well, Gareth, thank you very much for coming back on our show. I appreciate you sharing some of your thoughts uh, around uh, learning, organizational learning, storytelling. I think it's a very powerful uh, series of ideas to take forward. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Eric. Love being on it again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.